Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden named California Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. Before they are officially nominated next week at the Democratic National Convention, we wanted to hear from Ron Campius, Washington bureau chief at the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, always astute at finding the Jewish angle to any story, to learn what American Jews should know about Senator Harris. Ron, it's good to have you back with us on People of the Pod. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me. I can't help but shake the feeling that we just wasted a year. From the outset, someone could have guessed, okay, the nominee is going to be Joe Biden. And then once the nominee was Joe Biden, someone could have guessed, was this decision a surprise at all to you? Or, or should we have seen that this is always where it was going? I think you know, what kept the, um, Joe Biden in the race was the loyalty of his donors when he was really down around uh, December. They kept up with him. He was having difficulty fundraising then. Part of it is his seniority, the fact that he's been in so long. He had enough of a deep base of donors that they sustained him through then. Whereas people like Cory Booker and uh, Kamala Harris didn't survive that period because they just didn't have the uh, the donor base he did. But there were certainly ups and downs. And you had the beginning of this year where for about four weeks, Bernie Sanders was the fun front runner. I do think that once the vice presidential stakes started, it was down to a couple of uh, serious contenders and Kamala Harris was definitely one of them. Now that things have shaken out and we have Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, followed by Kamala Harris, I think American Jews are wondering, you know, Kamala was not exactly a stranger. She's certainly someone who had exposure during her time in the presidential primary. But I think American Jews are, you know, wondering or, or beginning to wonder what they should expect from her as vice president, what they need to know about her. So I, I want to just kind of start with some of the issues that are most commonly associated with Jewish voters, start with anti-Semitism, move to Israel, and then kind of hear about some general Jewish info. Maybe there's some tidbits that you know that you want to share. Even before she was attorney general, when she was a prosecutor in San Francisco, and then I think if she continued this into her status as attorney general, she backed uh, hate crimes legislation, which is a uh, you know, it's a key organizational Jewish uh, push to uh, to back uh, to to enhance uh, existing crimes with penalties if they're committed because of, uh, of bigotry, because of bias. So she was very much in the front on that. She specifically mentioned in pushing for it a tax on uh, on uh, Jewish targets in California. So very very sensitive to that issue as far as that goes. I think she's uh, you know, she's really out front on the anti-Semitism issue. And if people want to take action on hate crimes, they can head to AJC.org slash take action and help join our push to uh, to get Congress to pass the No Hate Act. Let's move now to Israel. I mean, Joe Biden has these kind of, you know, rock solid half a century of Israel work. He he likes to tell the story. And I think I've heard him tell the story once and, and have heard you either on Twitter or in writing recount the story more than once of his first meeting with an Israeli prime minister, Golda Meir, um, uh, all those many years ago. What about Kamala Harris's relationship with uh, with the state of Israel? Uh, also close. She's been there. She uh, she waxed uh, when she came back. I think she went on an AIEF trip. I'm not sure. Uh, but she's definitely been there. AIES is the educational affiliate of, uh, of APAC. Um, and she waxed uh, very eloquently about the Supreme Court. She really admired it. The 
the the architecture. And there is what to admire. If anybody's ever been to Israel and toured the Supreme Court building, it's really a beautiful building. She's definitely more apex than J Street. J Street, a liberal Middle East Jewish policy group, now has secured, now has endorsed or secured the agreement to be endorsed by a majority of Democrats in both chambers, in the House and the Senate. Kamala Harris is not one of them. She's in the minority that uh, would prefer to hang out with APAC uh, or, you know, to the exclusion of J Street, because there are people who are in both camps, J Street and APAC. She, um, uh, in 2019, there was a kind of um, specious attempt to say that uh, presidential candidates were boycotting APAC when APAC makes a point of not inviting presidential candidates to speak until it's actually the year of the election. In other words, they weren't going to go until 2020. So people, you know, are saying, ah, Kamala Harris is not speaking at APAC this year in 2019. That means she's boycotting APAC. And to make a point that she wasn't, she uh, posed with uh, the APAC delegates who came to her office that year and put it on Twitter and said how proud she was uh, to stand with APAC. She, uh, she helped author a resolution in 2017, right after uh, the Obama administration allowed through a, uh, a UN Security Council resolution that criticized Israel for its settlement activity, one that was very, very unpopular with the, uh, the centrist pro-Israel community uh, with APAC. And she authored a resolution that, uh, you know, took the Obama administration to task for having allowed that resolution through. So she's just definitely centrist on, on Israel issues. The one thing where, where Republicans, um, a couple of things where Republicans kind of ding her, and you'd probably come out, she wasn't a senator in 2015 when the Iran deal was approved by the by Congress, or wasn't, uh, or more accurately, wasn't scuttled by Congress. But she said she would have voted for the Iran deal. Uh, the other thing is that there is a bill in Congress that um, would uh, add penalties for boycotting Israel, or would support uh, states that penalize people for boycotting Israel. She opposes that, and like other Democrats who opposed it, she says that she opposes BDS, but she believes in. Uh, Boycotts should be a protected speech, that they shouldn't be targeted for penalties. There's one word that hasn't crossed either of our lips yet, and it's going to uh, bring us into the the last thing I want to talk about with like general Jewish trivia about Kamala and things that are, you know, maybe secondary, but still important to know. And, and that word is Doug. Yes, her husband, Doug Emhoff, is Jewish, a, um, uh, you know, and, a, and somebody who is a, was a member of the Temple Shalom in San Francisco. I've heard that uh, they met because they were fixed up either by uh, Kamala's sister Maya or by friends. They met. Uh, he'd, he'd been married. I don't think she'd been married before. She had long-term relationships before. So he has grown children. Um, and they, they call her Mamala. I presume, which she says is their, her proudest <laughs> title. I presume it's because that great rhymes with Kamala, but it's obviously obvious, you know, the, the Yiddish derivative for mother, Mamala. And... Um, they smashed the glass at their wedding because uh, to honor his, uh, his Jewish heritage, she has, uh, if you look up her video online, she has this very funny story about meeting her in-laws for the first time and his mother sort of grasps her face between her hands, which I think, I think we've all known Jewish mothers to do that. And she says to her husband, Mike, Mike, look at her. She's so much prettier in real life than on TV. She has a very big laugh, Kamala Harris. And so it comes out when she... Uh, when she tells that story, so she, yes, she definitely has that Jewish uh, that Jewish connection and that Jewish awareness. And you know, I mean, I guess it probably informs some of their positions as well. Of the four candidates now, uh, Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, Mike Pence, 
and Donald Trump, only one, Mike Pence, does not have Jews in the family. <laughs> Everybody else has Jews in media families. I imagine someone could write a, a doctoral dissertation about what that says about the state of, uh, of American Jews today. Right. Ron, thank you so much for, for joining us and, and helping us to, uh, to understand this very important uh, news uh, just a little bit better. Uh, we look forward to having you on again in the future. Thank you. Last week, an explosion rocked Lebanon's capital of Beirut, killing at least 171 people, injuring thousands, and damaging more than half the city. Since then, protesters and looters have filled the streets. The Prime Minister Hassan Diab and his cabinet have resigned, and France has organized an international aid conference to help a country that had already plunged into economic crisis. But donors and diplomats have said Lebanon needs more than humanitarian aid. They have called for a meaningful conversation about reforming the system there and the significant role played by Hezbollah, a global terrorist organization that actually serves as one of Lebanon's political parties. Here to help us understand the events unfolding in Lebanon is Matthew Levitt, director of the Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Washington Institute, and the author of the book Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, first, let's understand Lebanon. We hear a lot about the civil war in Syria, the nuclear threats in Iran, but please describe for our listeners who might not yet know, what is the history of Lebanon and how does that reverberate today in terms of how their government is structured? So Lebanon was at one point under French colonial rule and then achieved independence. It's a country that has uh, many confessional communities, many sectarian communities, and it's been very, very sensitive ever to take a, a census because that might suggest a rebalancing of who's larger, who's smaller within the Lebanese political system. Uh, and the system is divided between each of these confessional communities. And so the speaker of the parliament comes from one sectarian community and the president from another and the prime minister from another. And the entire system is built on being divided across these uh, various communities. What's happened over time, however, is that each of these communities is led by basically one person. And so you have a small number of individuals who, almost like mafia dons, are the kind of vested leaders of their community. Even if they are not personally holding a position in government, it's one of their people who is. Each of these communities is able to make a tremendous amount of money off of, out of, and from the government. And so they all have a vested interest in the government staying as it is, more than they have an interest in seeing that the government provide better governance, better services to the people, be more responsive to the people. And after the horrific explosion in Beirut, that you're seeing protests on the street where people want everyone out, not just the individuals who are holding office right now, but they want the confessional system gone, fearing that if the only issue that's dealt with in the immediate is the humanitarian catastrophe, and there is a humanitarian catastrophe, and we have to deal with it in the immediate, uh, but everybody, every Lebanese I've seen is saying on, on social media, for example, give, please give, do not give to any government agency, give to the Red Cross, give to other international organizations, uh, otherwise the money's just going to be going to something other than humanitarian aid. If we don't deal with something more than just the humanitarian catastrophe, if we don't deal with the political uh, underlying political problems, you're just going to have 
a new national unity government with the same old mafiosos who run each of the sectarian communities, the Sunni community, the Shia community, the Druze community, etc., and there will be no change. And the concern is that the French have, as a former colonial power, have taken lead to their credit to try and address the humanitarian crisis and to try and put in place a new national unity government so that there will be stability. But their laser-like focus on stability and on humanitarian support, the concern is, risks losing an opportunity, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually change the system. So how does the resignation of the prime minister change that process or affect that process? Does it hasten it? Does it tie it up? The resignation is, I guess, kind of necessary for there to be change, but there was no way that Diab was going to be able to stay uh, in power. He was not an effective person. The explosion in Beirut comes on the heels of the coronavirus, which comes on the heels of a massive economic crisis, which predates coronavirus, a corruption crisis. And so Lebanon's been dealing with these things now piling one on top of another. People say, you know, oh, Lebanon, they've got such resilience. I saw someone saying, a Lebanese saying on social media today, I don't want to have to be resilient anymore. You'd think that of the two countries, Lebanon and Syria, they'd think that the one that would have collapsed would have been Lebanon because it's so deeply divided. But look, it was Syria that collapsed, even though it was a, a police state. And the answer I've seen some people give is that it's kind of like building an airplane. If you build an airplane with no give, then as soon as it starts to take off, it's going to break apart. And in Syria, there was no give. It was a police state. So once things started taking off and there was a lot of pressure, it couldn't sustain itself without much, much more violence and pressure. Whereas Lebanon, there's so much flexibility built into the system, it can take so much. But what we've clearly seen is it still, too, can only take so much before if you build in too much flexibility into an airplane, it it won't have cohesion and it'll fall apart too. With the resignation um, of the prime minister, you have now the opportunity for a new government. He's still the caretaker until a new government comes into place. And there's a real risk that the French and others will simply move to put a new unity government based on the same principles and power as soon as possible for the sake of stability. I think that's a very big mistake. Hezbollah is not just another political party. It is the most powerful political party because it maintains its own army that is larger, better armed, and better funded than the Lebanese armed forces. Actually, if you look at the New Zealand designation of just the military and terrorist wing of Hezbollah, they point to Hezbollah taking over downtown Beirut by force of arms in 2008 and turning its weapons against fellow Lebanese as an act of terrorism, uh, one of the prongs for which they decided Hezbollah warranted that partial designation. So, Matthew, you mentioned the aid conference, and there has been a push among some international donors and organizations, including AJC, that in order for uh, there to be a meaningful conversation about aid and recovery in Lebanon, Hezbollah must be addressed. Can you explain what the concerns are there? So there are multiple concerns here, but the concern specific to Hezbollah, and again, I want to stress that there are multiple concerns across the political spectrum that are not limited only to Hezbollah. But because Hezbollah is the militant organization involved, the concern uh, with Hezbollah is that it is best positioned to take advantage of a massive influx of humanitarian aid, which is desperately needed, but for which there is not an absorption capacity within the state. 
and that a lot of this money would be either siphoned off by Hezbollah for its own purposes or used by Hezbollah to provide Hezbollah services, paying Hezbollah salaries and gaining Hezbollah grassroots support because people will see that it's Hezbollah that is providing these services. So, Matthew, I also want to talk a little bit about the ongoing conversation and push to get the European Union to designate Hezbollah a terrorist organization in its entirety. The UK has done so. Germany has done so. This is a cause that AJC has been very invested in. How do you think this moment could shift that ongoing conversation? I do think that it has new impetus and momentum though I am concerned that the tragedy in Beirut will divert some of that for a period of time. Because for some, in particular the French, the argument will be now's not the time to have that conversation because holding Hezbollah to task could really make them angry and could further destabilize Lebanon at a time where it's already so destabilized and at risk. Whereas I would argue that there's no party that is more destabilizing to Lebanon than Hezbollah. So, Matthew, you and your colleagues just unveiled an interactive map of Hezbollah activity around the world. How did that project come about and how will it be updated? How often? And by the way, listeners, we will include a link to that map in our show notes. So I wrote a book on Hezbollah. It came out in 2013, just before the whole designation Uh, debate in Europe started. One of the things I found when I went to Europe and talked to people is they had two big baskets of concerns. One of them was kind of policy issues. Will we still be able to have influence in Lebanon? Could we still talk to even Hezbollah parliamentarians if we designated Hezbollah? And by the way, the quick and simple answer to that is under the European Union's common position 931, CP 931, Absolutely. Whether it's a smart decision to or not, whether a newspaper might hold you accountable, you just designated them, but now you're talking to them. But legally, sure, you could talk to them all day. And the second was things like, you know, would there be reprisal attacks? Would Hezbollah be so angry of the designation that they'd start blowing things up in Paris or what have you? And there's never a case where because of a designation of any kind, Hezbollah has resorted to that extreme. The other basket, though, was people said, listen, we don't have any information. You don't share any information. How? I mean, if America doesn't tell us, how are we supposed to know? And, and, and the little bit that we do know, it's classified, we can't use it. There's a real need for seriously vetted, peer-reviewed information, unclassified or declassified, but that is to say open source information on Hezbollah's covert activities, the military activity, the criminal activity, the terrorist activity. And so it was very hard to have a kind of balanced conversation about all the different things that is Hezbollah because they had successfully, give them credit, they had shaped the debate by choosing and successfully making only that which they wanted you to know accessible. I wanted to level that playing field. A book by definition is not easily user accessible. It's not interactive. It's not easy and fun to use. And so some colleagues said to me, maybe you should do something with all that data, where you're putting in entries. There's, I believe, 999 entries in there today. Within the next few weeks, we should have probably about 200 more. We're going to be adding new entries all the time. And not just entries, maybe most importantly, documents. Nothing classified, but a lot of stuff that you can't just get on Google, court documents in particular, but also declassified FBI reports, CIA reports. But we can't just add anything. We're taking information. There's a way to send information to us. If you have information, please send it. Don't assume that means it's going to make it into the map. 
everything gets vetted. Well, I like to say information is power. So this seems to be a very reliable resource that will help countries do the right thing. Or at least to be able to have a full-fledged and balanced discussion about it. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation and helping us understand the juggernaut uh, that is Lebanon now. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Julie Raymond, AJC's Deputy Director of Political and Diplomatic Affairs. Julie, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Sefi and Manya. Thanks so much for having me here today. So we are 82 days from Election Day, four days until the start of the Democratic National Convention, and 11 days from the Republican National Convention. And to be honest, I am thinking and talking about very little else. At my Shabbat table, I'm going to be discussing conventions during a pandemic. Now, AJC has held programs alongside the DNC and the RNC for decades, convening panel discussions and diplomatic receptions to a degree that is frankly unparalleled in the Jewish community. Each day of each convention, we pull together panels of members of Congress, other elected officials, diplomats, journalists, and more to discuss key issues to AJC and to the broader Jewish community. These programs show what we, as an organization and as a people, are thinking about to the myriad constituencies that show up at a convention. They're also an important advocacy vehicle as they allow us to bring our views on the issues of the day to delegates, elected officials, and others. This year, we were all set to attend the convention in Milwaukee and Charlotte. We had venue spaces confirmed, hotel rooms booked. We were ready to go. Then the pandemic struck. AJC decided quite early on that we could not responsibly take part in the conventions, at least physically. Then the Democrats decided to host a virtual convention. The Republicans first shifted from Charlotte to Jacksonville, then didn't. And now almost every part of that convention will also be virtual. A recent Politico headline read, RIP Conventions. Of course, that's an exaggeration. There's still a lot of excitement around these virtual conventions and work, frankly, that needs to get done at the conventions. But for AJC, I'm excited and proud to say that we are not missing a beat. Everything that we would do in person, we are doing online. And really, for the first time ever, everyone in our broader AJC family can be a part of it not just the few people who could manage to get to the crowded convention sites like in previous years. Whereas before, it was something important that a small team did. Now, it's something that we're all doing together. In fact, our regularly scheduled Advocacy Anywhere program will be fully replaced during the next two weeks by our convention programming. Shabbat is supposed to be a time separate, set apart. Maybe I'm too enmeshed in this, but I think that this pandemic and the virtual programmatic world that it has created has opened the door for us organizationally to commit, hopefully in the long term, to thinking about the convention as a special time, a time set apart. Certainly, much of what happens alongside a convention is a far cry from the sacred, but the issues that we're talking about are only growing in importance and being able to set aside these upcoming two weeks to dive into how those issues are understood and articulated by the two parties is critical. I hope everyone will join us. Like our Advocacy Anywhere programs, the events alongside the conventions will be virtual and open for all. More information and registration is available at ajc.org backslash conventions. 
Thank you so much, Julie, for all of your hard work on our convention programming. I, for one, am really eager to see both conventions unfold this year. One reason being, I'm excited that a woman has been nominated to serve as vice president. Now, I've heard scuttlebutt that it could happen on both tickets, but I'm not going to spread rumors. All I know is I remember as a young girl watching Geraldine Ferraro run alongside Walter Mondale. Little girls watched inspired as Sarah Palin ran alongside John McCain. And when Hillary Clinton accepted the Democratic presidential nomination shortly before my daughter was born, I patted my belly a little happier that I was bringing her into an America where women could do that. Before the Mondale Ferraro ticket, I looked to other countries as a child, Indira Gandhi in India. Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom, and I heard all about the legendary Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir, who had died by the time I was old enough to comprehend what it meant for a woman to be the head of a nation. But there are so many barriers to be broken, so many lines to be crossed in this world, and I really enjoyed a recent story in the Washington Post about four Israeli women who have broken new political ground as lawmakers. It's a beautiful picture of Israel's diversity. No, it is not exclusively ethnic, as some opinion writers for the Washington Post might tell you, in hopes you don't look it up. No, on the contrary, these female lawmakers illustrate that. Panina Tamanu Shata has served in the Knesset since 2013. Now, she's the first government minister born in Ethiopia, the Minister of Immigrant Absorption, no less. She was three years old when her family left their village in Ethiopia and spent months hiding their Jewish identity in a refugee camp in Sudan. They were secretly airlifted to Israel in a military operation called Operation Moses in the 1980s. Minister Omer Yankalevich, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman, now serves as Israel's Minister of Diaspora Affairs, a crucial role serving as the liaison between Israel and the global Jewish community. Gadir Kamal Marich became the first non-Jewish woman to anchor an Israeli news broadcast in 2017. Now she's the first Druze woman in the Knesset. And Iman Khatib Yassin has become the first lawmaker in the parliament to wear a hijab. Several of the women had to overcome significant pushback from men in their conservative communities. Hey, let's face it, they all overcame some reticence, even if it wasn't obvious. But it's not just being women that makes these ministers and members of the Knesset noteworthy. It's being women who embrace who they are and wear it confidently, whether it's her ethnicity, her religious practice, her race, or her politics. My daughter turns four this month, about the age I began to announce that I wanted to be president of the United States one day. I hope the extraordinary circumstances of this particular presidential contest allow my daughter to watch a few campaign speeches featuring Kamala Harris. I want my young Jewish daughter to hear and see the possibilities. If she wants to continue declaring princess as her future occupation, that's fine. It's her choice. But that's just it. She has choices. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, what will you be talking about? Well, this week was a busy one at AJC with Advocacy Anywhere programs featuring celebrity Nick Cannon on Monday and chair of the House Democratic Caucus, Hakeem Jeffries, on Wednesday. But in between the cultural and political celebrity was a little-known name who shared a message no less important than conversations about anti-Semitism in the Black community or about the inner workings of Congress. Nuri Turkel is a commissioner on the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. He is also the chairman of the board for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, which he co-founded in 2003, and has served as the president of the Uyghur American Association, where he led efforts to raise the profile of the Uyghur people in the United States. 
Commissioner Turkel was born in Xinjiang province in China, a territory more than three times the size of California. The majority of the Uyghurs live in Xinjiang, and they make up 45% of the population of that territory, the largest demographic group. They are predominantly Muslim, and they are under grave threat. Commissioner Turkel spoke of coming to the U.S. for graduate school and escaping decades of escalating persecution of his fellow Uyghurs. He said he never expects to see the land of his birth again, nor does he have hope of reuniting with his loved ones. He spoke about the one to three million Uyghurs that China has imprisoned in so-called re-education camps and the urgent need to help them and support their fight to survive, to save their culture, and to save their very lives. For more than 75 years, we Jews have venerated the motto, never again. Right now, the least we can do is to watch the video of Nuri Turkel's story at AJC.org and to discuss the plight of the Uyghurs at our Shabbat tables. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.